you know, I remember one week, I think we had 12 people that passed away and, you know, I would come in and I would see nurses in the corner just crying and breaking down. And, um, you know, I, I don't think people really understand how much, you know, people in that facility went through. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 89 of the Command of Voice. Today, I speak with a family doctor at Providence Hospital. Please welcome Dr. James Grierson. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Camino Voice podcast, where I interview folks around Camino Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Command of Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. Uh, on this episode, I got to speak with Dr. James Grierson, or Dr. Jimmy, as many people know him. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of my things that I really enjoy about being able to do this podcast is uh, to be able to kind of brag on different people that I get to interview and talk with. And talking with Dr. Jimmy, I just learned, uh, one, I learned a lot, but just seeing what he does within his community. Uh, he's been a family physician or a family doctor uh, at Providence for about five years. Uh, and he was working in the San Camino area before that as a family doctor. And their family has been in heavily involved in the community. Uh, his daughter actually worked for us for a short amount of time before she uh, went off to college and, and took off. But um, she was, I mean, it was great having her here at the marketplace. Um, but one of the things that stood out so much in this interview is just to become a doctor uh, of, of any level is a lot of work and a long road to get there. And then once you get there, it's also a very difficult job. Like you just continue on and it's, it's a lot of work. And so not only does he, is he a family doctor, um, so already has a full-time job in that, but he also worked to start the Free Harbor uh, Clinic here in the Stanwood area. And it was like the amount of time and energy he put into that was a lot. And then on top of that, he volunteers and helps out with other things as well. He's also the director of uh, the medical director at Josephine's uh, Caring Community Center. And so like he's so involved in so many different parts within this community. Um, like <laughs> I sometimes get overwhelmed with what I have going on. And then I talk to people like this that are just overperforming at such a high level um, and, and completely out of care and, um, you know, humility um, and just, again, like care for this community and really, um, yeah. So you'll, all of that will come out in this interview. You'll really understand what I'm talking about here. Uh, this is a little bit of a longer interview, but it's totally worth it. Uh, just, again, hearing all of his background and then uh, what he's been involved in in this community um, you're really going to enjoy this podcast. So uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jimmy. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Command of Voice. Today, I'm here with a family doctor at Providence. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jimmy Gerson. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Brandon. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Dr. Jimmy. Will do. So a uh, couple of things. I didn't grow up on Camino. Uh, I grew up in, uh, in both Montana, uh, Eastern Montana, as well as later on graduated from high school uh, from the Portland area. 
um, went to uh, college at Pacific Lutheran in Tacoma, uh, and then went to medical school at the University of Washington. Okay. Uh, and then I've actually been uh, Commando or Stanwood was my first job out of residency, so started uh, started in Stanwood in 2004, and have lived on the island since that time. Okay. Very cool. Um, so what part of Montana did you grow up in? Then? So I grew up in uh, I grew up in eastern Montana, a little town called Miles City, Montana, which is actually has some pretty cool history of its own. My um, my great great grandparents came over from Scotland and started a uh, they started a uh, a ranch a horse ranch uh, that sold um, horses to the cavalry. the The cavalry was based um, at a place called Fort Keogh, which is now Miles City, um, and that's where Custer was based, and that's where Ulysses S. Grant was based. Okay. Yeah, and then in the 1900s, uh, it changed to like a, a, a cattle ranch, and I've had family there ever since. Okay, very cool. Yeah. Nice. So is most of your family back in Montana still? You know, uh, my dad's side of the family is is in Montana, and uh, my parents are divorced. My mom lives in Oregon. Okay. And I've got uh, I've got one sister uh, who still lives in Montana, and one sister who lives in Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. So then, when did you end up moving to or- Portland then? So uh, I moved uh, to Portland kind of at the uh, middle of uh, middle school. Okay. Um, and then completed completed high school there. So I went to uh, uh, a little Christian school called West Westside Christian High School in um, in Portland. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So was that a big change for you moving from Montana, kind of middle of nowhere, to Portland? <laughs> well, you know, middle school is always a little bit of a rough time, I think, to move anywhere. And so, um, yeah, it was. It's just you know, everywhere you go in the United States, there's just different different personalities and. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was the big city as far as I was concerned. So, um, no, but it was, it would, it's been a great experience. Really love the time I spent in Portland. Yeah. Very cool. So then, uh, you were, went to school. Um, so then you went to school in Tacoma, you said? Yeah. So I went to, uh, I went to college at Pacific Lutheran, uh, right out of high school, uh, majored in biology and minored in creative writing. Okay. Was, uh, at this point was becoming a doctor, was that on your list or were you kind of just exploring still? Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. So, um, so my dad, uh, was a rancher slash general and trauma surgeon. So he, uh, I know, right. (laughs) Brenda's giving me funny looks. So, um, so, uh, you know, I, I always really liked medicine because growing up in a small town, you get to do a lot. You know, my, my, um, my stepmom was the head of the emergency room and, you know, if I need to be babysat, they would just drop me off with the nurses at the hospital, and I would kind of, <laughs> I would wander around and get in trouble a little bit. And um, uh, in a small town, back way back then, also got to help my dad out in surgery a little bit, and really enjoyed it. But um, I didn't want to jump into something just because my dad did it, and yeah. so, so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out who I was. And mm-hmm. I, you know, in high school, I'd worked as a uh, as a nurse's aide at a hospital and, and at a nursing home. Um, I'd done a lot of kind of volunteer work. Um, and I, I really found that I loved a couple of different things. I loved, I loved the, the kind of complexity of medicine, trying to figure out kind of interesting problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the, I love the people part. Um, uh, I love the teaching. And then, uh, later on um, in college, I really realized that I kind of like the counseling part. And so 
I kind of thought, you know, do, do I want to be a teacher? Do I want to be a pastor? Um, uh, you know, do I want to go into the sciences? And then I, I came to realize that my chosen profession and where I am now of family medicine is really a perfect blend of all those things. Yeah. Cool. How does that kind of all combine together then? So, you know, as a, as a family doc, especially as kind of a full spectrum family doc, um, you know, you, you end up doing a lot with people. So whether it's, you know, uh, delivering babies, um, you know, taking care of uh, little kids, um, you know, taking care of adults or being part of kind of end of life, um, you just have an opportunity to kind of be part of people's families. And, you know, when you're part of people's families, I think that just kind of comes naturally. Um, You know, people get sick, uh, they have a lot of interesting health conditions you know, trying to make sure that they get the best possible care and the correct diagnosis kind of really fulfills that kind of scientific part, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out the problem. Um, but then, you know, being with them during the difficult things, you know, the uh, the depression, the, the losses that they have, um, you know, helping them, you know, through those difficult times or trying yeah. times, um, that's really where a lot of the counseling comes in. Um, you know, it's, it's always been, it's kind of always been my, um, my thought and, and my realization that, um, uh, you know, people need to be loved, Yeah. you know, when it really comes down to it. And, um, uh, you know, it's just such an awesome opportunity to be able to show God's love to people being a, being a family doc and, uh, help them through that kind of counseling part. Um, and especially, you know, when things are really difficult, you know, yeah. there's, there's a lot of death in our profession and there's a lot of scary things that happen. Um, uh, and then I just love the education piece as well. So, uh, it's just a great chance to, you know, talk to people about making good decisions about, you know, what things can kind of make them healthy, Yeah, helping them, you know, understand, um, you know, why, why we do certain things, right? Yeah. Like, like, why is it important to get a COVID vaccine? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, how do you separate, you know, misinformation or disinformation from, um, uh, from, you know, kind of scientific basis of fact. And, uh, and so I know it's just, it's just a great privilege. There's, there's that, their quote that says, if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's very much how it is for me. Very cool. So, so going back then, uh, I know I kind of took us on that tangent, but going back, you were, so you studied biology what kind of tipped the scale to make you pursue family medicine then? Yeah, you know, so my dad was a surgeon. And, you know, a perfect description of a surgeon is, uh, or someone who wants to be a surgeon, is there is an interesting medical problem um, uh, and the person's completely anesthetized, right? And so, you know, for me, I just love the... Um, I love the the person part of it. Yeah. Um, and quite frankly, you know, if I was to like take out a gallbladder like all day long or do a colonoscopies all day long, I get pretty bored. So <laughs> I think I've got maybe a little bit of ADHD built in, but I just love the variety. Um, family medicine could also be called kind of controlled chaos in, yep. a, in a way where <laughs> there's, you know, you've got three exam rooms and, and, you know, all sorts of things kind of going on on the side. And so uh, I... I tend to thrive in those environments. Yeah. Um, I kind of like the craziness. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think that's part of what makes it fun. And, and uh, you know, it's those personalities that, that, uh, that make it fun as well. Yeah. Well, I think anytime you, you insert kids into the mix, usually chaos ensues. Ah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. 
<laughs> okay, very cool. So you started uh, in Stanwood. Uh, so so you decided to go to the uh, family medicine. Correct. You graduate. Uh, how, what kind of happened next? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so medical school uh, is four years. And so uh, I did four years at the University of Washington and then uh, did rotations around the Seattle area um, and actually in Montana as well. Um, and then after the four years at the U um, in med school, uh, then did a three-year residency in Vancouver, Washington. Okay. And so, uh, and worked in some of the Portland hospitals and then uh, uh, in Vancouver, Washington, um, kind of learning the, the, the nuts and bolts of family medicine specifically. Yeah. Um, and then, this is kind of a great story, you know, I... I, uh, I'd spent, you know, the last seven years kind of dragging my wife around and, and, uh, you know, and, and I just said, you know, look, you know, this doesn't need to be all about me. Where would you, where do you want to live? We could live anywhere you want in the United States. And, and so we were looking at a few, um, you know, kind of few job openings and some postings and, you know, she kind of said, what do you want? I said, you know, I'm from Montana and I want to be able to drive by cows on my way to work. <laughs> and she said, you know, I want to be within 30 minutes of Costco. And so, uh, you know, so we just found it in a journal, this, you know, this job opening in, in Stanwood. And um, uh, we came to visit and um, actually we had had a couple, I had a couple of friends from, uh, from college uh, that lived here. So okay. uh, JP DeBoer and Kaya DeBoer. Okay. Uh, JP's uh, he works for Windermere and yeah. um, uh, and you know they loved it um, uh, we also had read a, an article about uh, the Rawls family that at the time owned uh, a basil company okay. here here on Camano wow. uh, okay. and um, the funny thing is is we we moved in and and you know our daughter Hannah went to school with all their kids and uh, for both families and We've, everyone's kind of been fast friends ever, ever since. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So <laughs> what was the, the actual uh, job opening in Stanwood then? It was for a full-spectrum family medicine doc. Um, and so Carol Hooksema, um, who is married to Pat Clark, they had run the clinic at that time. Okay. And they were just looking for uh, another person to, to step in. Um, and so uh, we actually ended up probably even doing more medically at that time. Um, we did a lot of hospital call. We... Um, you know, we'd kind of run the ICU. We would do a lot of procedures. Um, obviously, you know, we're delivering a lot of babies here in Stanwood at that time as well. Um, uh, and, you know, just like you, being able to kind of interview a lot of uh, people uh, that kind of live in the area, it was just a, kind of a great opportunity to really meet a lot of the a lot of the old timers as well, and yeah. you know, learned a lot about the area too. And I used to call them all the road people, you know, the people that have the, the names that match up with the roads. Yes. So <laughs> <clears throat> got to meet a lot of them and hear some great stories. So, um, so yeah, so that was our first, uh, first job out of, uh, out of residency and it was, it was great. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. So how long were you there then? I was in Stanwood for 12 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, and then what kind of prompted the change from there? So, uh, you know, the big thing was, is, is, the systems were changing a little bit. We'd been bought out by Skagit. Um, uh, I, you know, uh, Dr. Hooksom had retired at that time. Um, there were some other opportunities that came up. Um, uh, Providence really kind of fit the mission for my life, yeah. um, taking care of the poor and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, and it just seemed like a, a great opportunity. And so, um, so actually, 
uh, kind of at that time, our clinic had kind of disbanded a bit, and three of us went over to Providence, and okay. um, uh, another couple retired, and then Dr. Andalin moved uh, moved into um, emergency medicine. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Well, uh, you know, I, I can say because we've had different family members and stuff who've had to go to Providence and stuff, mm-hmm. um, every time we've gone there, it's been a, you know, it's never a good reason that you're going to a hospital. Yeah. But, like, while we are there, the the staff, everyone, like, it's been such a great environment to be in, um, despite whatever circumstances are going on. Like, the care they provide, um, I just, I feel like within the area, Providence is definitely one that we really, like, um, admired how well the hospital and the whole, the group, the staff, everyone worked there. Absolutely. And, you know, Providence has almost a Disneyland-like attitude of, you know, in, in Disneyland, you know, even the executives are picking up the trash. Mm-hmm. Um, at Providence, um, there's a, uh, uh, not part of the mission statement, but um, uh, part of part of their values is uh, know me, care for me, ease my way. And so, you know, the goal is really how do we continue to put, put patients first? Um, you know, not only the people we take care of, but, you know, how do we you know, put our, you know, more disadvantaged patients, um, or those people that don't have the best access to medical care, how do we, how do we care for them as well? And, yeah. uh, I've, I've really, um, I've really appreciated that. And, you know, when, when you work for an organization where that's the overriding mission, um, things just go well and, yeah. and good patient care happens. Yeah. How, how does that work when you have people that are, uh, whether they're uninsured or, or aren't able to get good insurance, how does that all operate? Like, how do you guys kind of uh, live out that mission statement? Yeah, so Providence is actually the only um, hospital uh, in our local Puget Sound area that will provide up to 100% charity care uh, if people need it. Wow. Um, other hospitals in the region may provide up to 50%, but they'll still send you to collections um, for everything else. Wow. And so... Um, and then Providence does a really good job of working with outside organizations, um, helping to support them, um, you know, uh, and help them support that mission as well. So um, it's it's nice in a way to to be part of an organization that is not uh, just uh, has only their their capital here in um, or their all their money, uh, you know, just locally. Um, they're a larger organization over several states, yeah. and so, you know, when when certain regions are uh, struggling more, they can put more resources towards one particular region. So, yeah. uh, there's been that financial stability that that has not always been present in other uh, organizations or other hospital groups or clinic groups. Yeah. Uh, locally, so um, it's allowed them to kind of I think stay true to that mission. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so uh, you're still at, with Providence then? I'm still with Providence, yep. correct. I've been there for about five years. Okay, very cool. Um, so continuing on then, you also, that, that's what you do on a professional level, but you've also helped with some other nonprofits and stuff in the area. Um, and one in particular, the Safe Harbor cl- uh, Free Clinic. Can you tell us more about that and, and how that came about? Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, obviously that is, is Brandon has known me well, and, and this is, uh, this has been a, a big part of my life for the past um, uh, 12, 13 years. Um, again, I've always really had a heart for those who, um, uh, uh, you know, need care and can't get that. And, um, you know, had been going on a number of 
uh, overseas mission trips with Commando Chapel, yeah. uh, you know, to Haiti and, and such, and and then also with um, uh, with Stanwood Foursquare and places like the Dominican Republic and, and Papua New Guinea, um, and those are just really amazing experiences. And you know, was with a group of people who had done that, and you know the the thought kind of came up that you know you know, if people are suffering, you know, thousands of miles away and we mm-hmm. can, we can step in and, and, you know, do some things to help get them on the right track, help set up clinics, uh, help, you know, teach and educate them. Um, you know, is there any of that need in our local community? Yeah. And this is kind of right at the time again, where, um, where smaller clinics were becoming part of larger healthcare organizations. And, you know, it used to be, and if, if you, you know, grew up here 20 or 30 years ago or, or longer, you know, if someone was really having a hard time and couldn't afford medical care, you know, the people in the clinic would just kind of take care of them. Doctors would write off things. Um, you know, there'd be things that could be done, you know, maybe we take the, take a pie or some cookies for, <laughs> uh, for services rendered. And, um, but that suddenly became kind of illegal, uh, right. uh, you know, especially working at that time for a, a clinic owned by a public hospital district. So, um, so, uh, and then, um, you know, medicine became a lot more expensive. So I think everyone has seen their healthcare premiums kind of go up. Um, there's been, you know, an increasing, uh, amount of people who have uh, lost healthcare and probably what's not talked about as much is, you know, there's an even larger group of people who, uh, even though they have healthcare, can't afford it. So, yeah. you know, um, just because you have insurance doesn't mean you can afford your $8,000 deductible before you, before it starts to kick in a little bit. Right. So, um, so we had started to kind of see more around, more people struggle around the, the Stanwood community area. And, you know, I think on the outside, you know, I think people might think that this area is more affluent than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you really look at the demographics, you know, especially more towards Stanwood, yeah. uh, that definitely is not, it definitely is not true. And so, um, so we, uh, we kind of thought, okay, let's, let's think about the idea of a free clinic uh, in Stanwood. And um, <laughs> the story kind of goes that uh, I got elected to be the one to kind of do that. And I had thought, you know, I'd worked in a free clinic and residency in Vancouver. And so I said, okay, I'm going to call them up and kind of say like, you know, see, you know, what is, what is it like to start a free clinic? Is that, is that a doable thing? Is it, you know, what do you think? <laughs> and so I called up the director down in Vancouver and uh, I said, you know, can, you know, I've got a group of people that's kind of interested. Maybe we come down to visit or you could tell us a little bit more. And he said, you know, that's a great idea, but what you should really do is go to the Washington state free clinic conference. And I'm like, Oh, I didn't even know there was such a thing. So, <laughs> So I said, okay, you know, tell me, tell me more about that. And he's like, he's like, well, it's tomorrow and it's in <laughs> Richland, Washington. Um, and he gave me the information. And I thought, okay. And, you know, for me, um, you know, this free clinic business was, was a little bit of trying to live out God's purpose of, uh, a lot of trying to live out God's purpose of showing love to your neighbor. Yeah. And, um, but I was a little bit like Job, if you know about yeah. No, not excuse me, not Job, uh, but um, but uh, Jonah uh, okay. from the Bible. If you know about Jonah, so Jonah, <clears throat> Jonah was this guy who um, uh, who you know back then was kind of a pastor in a sense, kind of back then, and God had kind of tasked him with doing a few things. 
Uh, and he kind of wanted to do it, but uh, there were these people in Nineveh that he really didn't like. And so he kind of, you know, tried to get away as far away as possible. And yeah. that's where the whole part where the whale comes in and, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, spits him out. But um, so, uh, you know, and the reason I, I, ca- I kind of call it a bit of a Jonah moment is that uh, I was pretty busy. You know, I had three small kids and yeah. I was like, you know, man, my wife is going to kill me if I get really a lot more involved. And um, I'm not sure I'm really up to this. I'm not sure I'm good enough for this. I mean, you're, I think your brain kind of fills you with a lot of self-doubts and, yeah. you know, and, you know, why do I want to do this? And so I thought, oh, great. God is closing the door, right? Like I, this is going to be it. And so, um, so I hung up the phone and I, so I got back from lunch and a very next patient was this guy named Larry Weston. And I'd, I'd known him well. I'd, I'd, he was a retired businessman. I'd helped him through some health problems and, uh, and he had, I mentioned this idea of a free clinic to him before, and he kind of thought maybe it was cool. I said, hey, Larry, you know, I don't know you that well, uh, but you were kind of interested in this free clinic idea we had. He's like, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good idea. And I'm like, well, how would you like to pay your own way and go to Richland, Washington tomorrow and learn some more about it? <laughs> and he said, absolutely, I would love that. That would be an amazing opportunity. And I was just flabbergasted. So, so, um, so yeah, so he went... Um, he went to Richland, Washington and came back and, uh, got some information and we were pretty jazzed. And so, uh, and so we started, um, we just kind of started this, uh, startup board, uh, if you will. And, um, uh, we actually, uh, were awarded a grant, uh, from an organization that helps people start free clinics. Uh, okay. this guy is oil billionaire from Texas and kind of started out and, uh, you know what I, I in my heart, I was like, oh man, this is still, I don't know. Right. Like, yeah, that was pretty neat, but is this really, is this really what, you know, is this really what the Lord would have for me? Is this, is this really still a good idea? And so, um, and so that I had probably one of the more remarkable things that ever happened to me, which is, uh, we had met, um, we had met on, on a Saturday night and, um, uh, you know, we had figured out that if we're going to start a board, we actually have to have something called board insurance. Um, and you know, as a clueless doctor, I was like, really, I don't don't know what that's (laughs) about. So, um, and so, uh, we had, you know, we had gotten some sort of quote that, that that got delivered to us on, on Saturday. It was like, you know, you need like $438 and 12 cents. And so we're like, okay, well we can all kind of pitch in and, and figure that out. And then, um, we had actually gotten anonymous check, um, from, uh, from someone like Postmarked on Friday and said, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I know you're starting up this free clinic and I was just kind of prompted to give you this amount of money. And it was like $418 and 12 cents <laughs> or whatever it was. And I was like, oh my goodness, like, uh, this has got to be, this has got to be something we got to do. And so, um, so ever since then, um, you know, the people involved with that, including me, I think have just really poured a lot of heart and soul in that. And we started out, um, doing a clinic, um, once, uh, every couple of weeks on a Friday mm-hmm. night um, to now we have uh, clinic days that are three or four times a week. Wow. And so, uh, you know, I'll never forget our very first patient um, had driven from Pasco, Washington, and she had a breast lump. And she had, you know, I think we, we'd had a couple of news articles that got picked up on the EP and she had read about it. And uh, she drove all the way over and she waited outside our door for six hours. Um, and, uh, and that, I think really kind of cemented to me. It's like, yeah, you know, there are people that are much more desperate for healthcare uh, than you think. And, yeah. um, 
And, you know, as part of that journey, I've, I've really come to realize that, you know, we all have very unique talents uh, and training. Um, you know, not everyone's a doctor, but everyone should try to figure out what sort of talents they have and how do you kind of give back? Yeah. Uh, how do you give back to your community? And so, so a little bit more about, about the free clinic. We, um, uh, a couple of the really small stories is, you know, one of the things we needed was uh, we need some labs, right? Because it's hard to, hard to diagnose things if you can't tell what people's labs are like sometimes, right? Like, like I don't know. How's your thyroid? I don't know. Um, so, uh, so we talked with LabCorp and um, LabCorp said, you know, this free clinic idea is really cool. We'll give you a 10% discount wow. on labs. And uh, we were like, you know, 10% is really generous, but we want it for free. <laughs> completely for free. And you're big enough that you can do this uh, and you should do this. And, uh, and they came back a day later and they said, okay, we'll do it for free. And so, um, you know, for the last 10 years, you know, we've had free labs from, from LabCorp and we've just had so many people that have been so gracious and donated, um, services to the clinic, uh, North Sound Physical Therapy with Carl Hedin, um, you know, they'll, they'll see uh, a patient of ours for one or two visits um, that have physical therapy needs. Um, you know, we've had local counselors that have seen patients. Um, some of our, our uh, optometrists in, in town have seen people. Um, we've now grown to the, the part that we have a number of kind of clinics within clinics. So um, we have twice a week, we have uh, acute care clinics on Wednesdays and Fridays where we kind of see whatever people need kind of come in the door and we have appointments for those. Okay. And then we have a number of specialty clinics. We have, um, we have a podiatry clinic manned by podiatrists. We have uh, a cardiology clinic for the cardiologist. Uh, we have a general surgery clinic um, that to this point has been manned by a transplant and general surgeon. Okay. Um, we have an ultrasound clinic. We have an ultrasound tech from, from, uh, from Prav who comes over and, and helps do that. Um, we just started a women's clinic uh, where we're, we're taking care of, um, you know, women by women who, um, you know, especially that kind of need, you know, preventative, uh, sort of care. And uh, that's actually our newest clinic. And we're really excited about this. We, um, we had two, um, we had two really sad stories. We had a, we had a gal who had had a breast lump for a couple of years, uh, who, who didn't have insurance and didn't think that she could get care anywhere. And, you know, we saw her, we got her, uh, you know, we got her connected for a mammogram. She had a breast cancer. We got her connected with treatment. Um, she was a, she was a local gal who, um, was caring for uh, her two grandchildren, um, who are currently in middle school and one's in elementary school. Uh, and you know, she passed away and, um, uh, and then we had another, we had another patient, uh, with cervical cancer, um, who, uh, also had a, uh, a grade schooler, um, who, uh, ultimately ended up passing away and, um, you know, spending time with people as they suffer and, uh, you know, is, is really life changing and, you know, having, having moms or grandmothers who look you in the, in the eye and say, can you make sure that, you know, my kids are okay when I die? You know, we just said, you know, this can never happen again in our community. And so, really excited that we're able to provide, um, you know, services, uh, services like that. Um, so, so we do those things, um, right now, um, we're, we've been partnering with, um, with the food banks, uh, to make sure that, um, 
those people who don't have internet access or maybe disadvantaged with their communication can get COVID vaccines. Okay. So we've yep. been able to administer that. Um, we've done outreach work with um, with some of the migrant camps over time. So, um, we've uh, been involved with uh, policymaking on both a local and a national level, okay. um, and, which has been exciting. And then um, also have partnered with another group I work with called Mercy Watch. Uh, Mercy Watch um, provides uh, care to the homeless in, uh, in Everett, um, uh, both street care as well as um, at a number of uh, uh, shelters. Um, and so we kind of serve as their brick and mortar, uh, operation and help get them some free medications and, okay. and help share staff and best practices. So, so that's also been kind of a fun corollary to, to what we do at the free clinic. Nice. Yeah. And I think, um, like, uh, you know, spe- uh, specifically like the, the women's clinic and stuff like that, like, um, the changes and you, you know, this better than I do, but like women, go through so much more in their lives than men. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from just, like, watching the kids, which is a (laughs) massive job. Um, But, like, physically, like, throughout their lifetime, they go through so many more changes that they have to deal with and body and things like that. And it's so hard. It's much more difficult to pinpoint, like, this is unusual versus this is normal because of just my body's changing. Yeah. I, I, you know, I would very much agree with that. I would actually go a step farther and say, you know, you know, 30 plus percent of women also suffer from domestic violence. Um, women also bear the brunt of, um, of families that have dissolved, you know, because usually they're caring for their, you know, caring for kids as well. And, um, and so there's a, uh, there's a lot of obstacles I think that women uh, have to deal with besides just anatomic and physiologic differences that require yeah. some additional types of healthcare. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's, that's really cool that you guys have been able to do that. Um, I think, uh, I'm pretty sure Mike Dame, uh, yeah. CPA, he's been, uh, been involved in that. You know, Mike is an amazing guy. I love Mike Dame. So <laughs> I'll put a plug in for, um, uh, for that. He took over from Terry Greer. Um, he's a local CPA and, yeah. You know, we've been so fortunate to just have people on our board uh, and obviously our volunteers uh, as well who just have a heart for for people and for serving and for the community. Um, you know, a couple of other people on our board, uh, Tim Petzl, who's the pastor at Stanwood Foursquare. Okay. Um, Brett Reed, uh, who is a pastor at uh, Camino Chapel. Um, uh, we have... Um, uh, let me think of a couple other community leaders. Um, uh, Don Timmerman, uh, who's a local uh, real estate agent, yeah. uh, who's on, who's on our board. Um, previously, uh, it, well, jump back a little bit with the story. Larry Weston, actually, who I told you helped us start start by uh, going on uh, the, the evaluation to find uh, find out about the Free <laughs> Clinic Association. He was actually our first director, uh, our first executive director, and then Julie Vess, um, longtime. Um, uh, executive director and really, I would say, kind of the the matron of the clinic. Um, you know, uh, now obviously runs the the Stanwood uh, Senior Center. Okay. Um, and so, uh, a lot of great people. Um, one of the things that that I th- that's really great about the Stanwood Camino community is that. Uh, uh, you know, is that people work very well together. And Brandon, I know you know that just kind of living in the community, it's been pretty amazing. Um, uh, but, you know, our 
current executive director, who's also wonderful, Sandy Solis, um, who, who has kind of had her own local photography business. Um, she meets on a regular basis with the directors of other nonprofits, you know, with the food, with the food banks, uh, with the resource center, um, with SCAF. Um, and so, you know, we continue to network and, and help each other out in the best ways that we can. Um, currently we're, we're involved also with the making life work program. Uh, if you don't know much about that, that's, a uh, started with a grant from the United Way. Um, it's administered through the San Juan Commando Area Foundation, where we were taking um, uh, a certain number of families in poverty and kind of wrapping our arms around them, helping them with everything from, you know, childcare to job training to to medical care, um, trying to move them from the station that they're at, um, kind of out uh, into a, a better world. And and that started um, when. Uh, really from a letter the food bank had gotten um, that that had said, thank you for taking care of our family for the last 40 years. And that really kind of hit a nerve with a lot of us in the community. We just said, you know what? We have to do better than this. Someone shouldn't have to, you know, survive off the food bank for 40 years. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Um, so, so you've been doing this then, and then you also are involved with Josephine's, correct? Yeah, correct. So uh, I've been uh, involved with Josephine's um, for the past uh, 17 years now. Uh, so it's starting to date me a little bit. So I'm, I'm one of their uh, I'm one of the medical directors okay. over over Josephine's. Um, so one of the things I'm also really involved with uh, at, uh, through Providence and and uh, through some of my other work is uh, teaching medical residents and medical students. And so. Um, so I do have residents rotate with me, uh, when I'm at Josephine's on Fridays. Um, they also rotate with me at the free clinic as part of a community medicine, uh, month. Um, and then, uh, I also teach them separately a procedure clinic at my clinic. And then, um, you know, I still deliver quite a few babies and, and I attend on the OB wards and, uh, help precept them, uh, with obstetrics. So, okay. uh, so that's a little bit of part of what I do at, at Josephine's as well. Yeah. So, um, since it was all over the state, um, when everything was going on with COVID and everything, you, I'm sh- assuming you were extremely involved in like, okay, now how do we handle it now that this is going on? How did you kind of start breaking that down of dealing with the COVID outbreak and everything? Yeah, so I, um, I'm an early adopter, uh, and uh, I was also an early adopter of COVID. So I actually, uh, actually contracted COVID at the end of February, um, beginning of March of, of last year. And okay. so, uh, before it was even really a thing. And yeah. so, um, you know, I was fortunate that I was a physician. I could say, look, I've got symptoms. I'm around people. I want to be tested just to make sure. Um, and sure enough, I was positive and, and probably, you know, at that time, maybe it'd come through the, through the facility. Um, but it was, um, this year has been really difficult in a way. So we, Started out with uh, with an outbreak as, as has been well publicized at Josephine's, mm-hmm. um, kind of March April of last year. Um, we had another pretty significant outbreak uh, this fall. Um, it was a lot of scrambling because you know COVID has been uh, kind of a learn as you go yeah. sort of yeah. condition. Um, you know, we were at Josephine's. We were uh, not unlike a lot of other healthcare facilities where we did not have enough. Um, uh, personal protective equipment, uh, yeah. for staff. Um, 
you know, funding to try to deal with everything that's needed was was difficult. Uh, coming up with uh, infection control protocols. Um, you know, I, I have to be honest, I was a little bit naive. I thought, you know, wow, you know, this is a big national thing. I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure the government is going to try to help in and step in and try to help with some of this, but yeah. it was, it was pretty much every man for themselves. And so yeah. every, every place had to figure out how they were going to deal with, with these. And, uh, again, you know, Providence, um, Providence was really amazing. Um, I actually had the, the CEO at that time of Providence called me up and she says, Jimmy, what do you guys need? And I'm like, I'm like, Kim, Kim, this is Kim Williams who also lives on the Island. And I say, Kim, you know, we need, you know, you know, we need like a hundred thermometers and you know, oximeters and we need gowns and gloves. And she says, you know what? Uh, we will take care of you. And wow. uh, within 24 hours, there was a semi that pulled up um, that had all this equipment that came out on pallets. Um, and I mean, that was never publicized. Providence didn't make a big deal about that. That's crazy. Um, but uh, again, it's just part of people stepping up in the community to take care of people. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, the, I think everyone knows the government is very slow at moving and doing things like, you know, getting Correct. things done. Correct. And when emergencies strike, for some reason, we're like, well, they'll come up with something like they're not just going to leave us hanging. And yet that speed doesn't really increase when emergencies strike. They're still moving at their pace of like, well, we got to do this and follow this step. And so like it was for me, I've been able to see so many members within the community, um, you know, even right now, like with uh, the Camino Fire Department and mm -hmm. the Camino Center, uh, the way they're handling and getting through with the vaccine distribution is, is incredible how they've been able to do it, and especially because there's no official oversight government here. Right, right. Um, this is based on what they've decided, like, this is the best practice of how we think we can do it. And they are exponentially faster than other areas in this region that have full government funding, full hospital support, different things like that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, and, and again, I think we do have a great community and a great community government, but I think there's just a certain degree of bureaucracy that, that comes along with that. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and things just don't work as fast or as well as you want. But right. Again, what's what's just the the neatest thing about the Stanwood Camino area is that people do work together and they communicate. And so, for example, at Josephine's, um, you know, we were just able to call up the fire chief and say, "Okay, let's have some protocols in place for when you guys need to come over." And um, you know, how can we keep your your firefighters safe? And you know, what can we do to make sure that we've you know we're contacting you at the right time and such? And and that's worked that's worked really well. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to add is just a, a huge, um, a huge shout out and thank you to the people of Stanwood Camino, um, to really support the workers at Josephine's. Mm -hmm. And, you know, initially there was a little bit of this kind of coming back from Vietnam feeling, which is, you know, all these people at Josephine's, you know, they must've gotten it from the people who work there and, you know, you should try to find all those people and fire them. And, you know, there was, they were getting, people were getting ostracized, um, but, you know, uh, on the inside, you know, there was, you know, dozens of, of healthcare workers, nurses and, and food staff and, and such who, um, you know, they care so much for the residents that are there. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, I felt a little bit, a little bit like President Biden because, you know, medically there's not a lot I can do for people, right? I can give them oxygen, I can put them on steroids, I can treat as many other things, but, um, you know, but we had over 40 deaths at Josephine's and a lot of those were long-term residents. And those were, those were deaths that, um, you know, much like, much like you see in the news, you know, family weren't around. And so, you know, you had nurses that were FaceTiming last goodbyes to people and, um, you know, trying to coordinate things. And, you know, I remember one week, I think we had 12 people that passed away and, you know, I would come in and I would see nurses in the corner just crying and breaking down. And, um, you know, I, I don't think people really understand how much, you know, people in that facility went through, you know, when, when you sign up to work at a long-term care facility, um, you know, it's, it's not like you're the crack ER nurse that expects to see a lot of craziness and death. And, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you just want to take care of people and, and you've got a great heart and, um, and you may not even have some of the, the, the taught and learned coping skills that, that other people in healthcare facilities, um, have spent so many years training for. Um, and I think it was just extra hard. Um, you know, plus, you know, that part of, uh, kind of the shame blame game that that kind of came apart, uh, about, um, but again, people stand with Camino, they'd sent cards, they sent food. Um, I can't tell you how much that meant to the people. Yeah. Well, and I think, I was thinking about this when, when that was all going on of just having to like you getting home from work and because, you know, for the staff that were there, you know, they don't know what's going on. They don't, we don't still know how COVID's being tracked or traced or passed mm-hmm. on. So they're going home and sleeping alone. You know, they're going into a quarantine area of their house, sleeping for a few hours and then having to go back to work and going back into like a war zone and just, you know, going living that type of life of having to go back to work into this, you know, this lockdown place where it feels very secluded and, and alone. And like, it just, it, you know, my heart went out to those people that had to keep going in day in, day out. During yeah. That. Well, and a couple of things, you know, as much as people wear masks, and as great as that is, uh, COVID is still extremely contagious mm-hmm. no matter what you do. And, um, you know, we ultimately had, you know, between staff and residents, a couple hundred people at Josephine's that had COVID. And so, you know, when you're a, when you're a nurse, for example, going into that facility, you just know you're going to get it. Uh, and those people resign themselves to the fact that I know I'm going to contract COVID and, you know, uh, they put their lives on the line for that. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were also stepping up for, you know, the people that were out because of COVID. Um, uh, you know, there was there was a big staff shortage uh, for a while because so many people were sick and, and the need was so, uh, you know, so much higher that people were pulling double shifts and, um, you know, like you said, you know, quarantining from their families or not being at home. Um, you know, we, we had staff that were sick enough to be hospitalized and, and near death. Um, you know, fortunately we didn't have any staff members that, that passed away, but, um, uh, but there's people that, that continue to suffer. You know, we still have, we still have staff that have, probably have permanent loss of taste and smell. Um, you know, we have, we have staff that, you know, may have some permanent cardiac damage from, from this. So, uh, but people did that, um, because they felt it was their duty to take care of, of, of the residents. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So one of the things, one of the questions I actually had was, um, based on the way COVID interacts and the way it's been spread and things like that, um, 
what are, I guess, what are some like key things about COVID that made it different from past, you know, we usually have flu seasons. We've got little things like that that happen, but then we had things like the swine flu and things like that. What made COVID different in the sense of like, it became this global pandemic versus more localized and not quite as, um, you know, contagious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a couple of things, um, you know, first of all, swine flu was a real wake up, you know, back, um, you know, back in 2008 when swine flu came through, um, you know, at the clinic in Stanwood, we were, um, we were, were part of the preparations for that. Um, many people might remember some of the mass vaccinations we did for swine flu at Heritage Park, you know, that were coordinated with the fire department. Um, uh, the emergency management uh, system, you know, kind of was set up for kind of scary triage, you know, if, if something like, um, you know, the, the flu of, of um, you know, the early 1900s, um, you know, uh, 1918, if things were like that, um, swine flu uh, was a rough thing, but it wasn't as contagious uh, okay. as we had thought uh, that it might be. And so, um, you know, the, the 1918 flu was extremely contagious, um, as, as you have heard of. Um, uh, the one thing about flu is that it also follows a pretty much a pattern. Okay. Um, there's, you know, there's some pretty, you know, consistent symptoms of fever and, you know, cough and, and chills and things like that. Um, uh, COVID is really the great imitator, right? COVID can be anything. COVID can be completely asymptomatic. Um, COVID can be dramatically, you know, people get sick, really sick. It could be diarrhea. It could be fever. You know, when I had COVID, I didn't have a fever. Um, and that was one of the original diagnostic criteria for people to get tested. Well, if you do have a fever, it's like, no, I just, I just have a runny nose and a cough. And I don't know if this is my allergies or my asthma or, you know, if this is something else. And so, um, so it's, it's easier to spread in the fact that people don't realize that they may have it or, or, or or such. And then, um, uh, it, uh, it just is that much more contagious as a respiratory, uh, virus. And so, you know, there are some, um, there are some, uh, you know, viruses that are really contagious. Um, for those of you who remember the days of chickenpox, you know, chickenpox is a virus and everybody had chickenpox. Like yeah. it wasn't even, it wasn't even a thought that you wouldn't have it at some right. point. So, uh, thankfully, you know, when you get it young, um, it, you know, it's not as big of a deal. Right. Um, but it just, I think it just goes to show you that there are some viruses that no matter what you do, they're just kind of out there. Yeah. Yeah. So then with, um, I, you know, one thing I think uh, hopefully comes out of this uh, beneficial wise is like, you know, I think within communities and stuff, people, we're, we live in a society within the U.S. of like, just push through it, like just get past it, mm-hmm. don't make a big deal about it, just make it through. So that sometimes gets reflected in the way that people interact with sicknesses in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's many times where, you know, not within our business because it's food service, so we have to be a lot more careful. But, you know, when you when I worked as an engineer and stuff, people would come in like, yeah, it wasn't feeling so great, but, you know, I'm just going to try and knock this work out. And people just go in when they're sick and, like, yeah. they don't take a second thought. Like, no, you or, like, at church, like, people come in and they're like, well, my kid had a runny nose, but, you know, just kind of, it's fine. He, like, he's, he's not really sick. But, like, these different things, and we're like, no, I'm pretty sure he's sick. <laughs> like, please stay home. <laughs> so I think there's some awareness that's been built with that. Um, but one of the other things is that or questions I have is how do you think this kind of shapes us looking forward 
when it comes to like say five years from now, what do you kind of see as the long term effects of not just COVID, but the the result of things of COVID? Yeah, that, no, that's a great question, Brandon. So you're right. A couple of things uh, about your first statement, which is you know, there is a little bit of that bravado, right? Like you're going to go to work, you just suck it up and, and keep going. Um, but really the economic reality is, is there's a lot of people that can't afford to take off work, right? They, they don't have, they don't have financial ability or they don't have sick time or, um, you know, or they don't have childcare. Um, I mean, there's all of those real realities that, that yeah. make it difficult, uh, in the U S to, to do that specifically. Um, uh, and then, like you said, I think there's just differences in opinion as to, you know, what is sick exactly? And it still astounds me sometimes when people come in. Um, I'm like, you are really sick. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, different people have different thresholds, you know, um, for what they feel illness really is. And, yeah. and um, it's not obvious to, to people sometimes as well. Um, you know, COVID has been, uh, and really when this is all said and done, I, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about how COVID has changed our society. And so, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the obvious things is it's, it's really shown us that there's a real divide, I think, in people and how they, um, they approach, um, some of the, the requested government regulations. Um, yeah. I think that that has really, um, been more of a schism in our society and, uh, perhaps, you know, worsened a lot just by the politics of the recent election. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just struck by how people react to basic public health measures when, you know, when, if you thought about things in the 1950s, when we had a polio outbreak, you know, people would have been completely different. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I, I really feel for those people that are trying to make decisions because even I've been frustrated at times, you know, (laughs) I've got kids that I want to get back to school and, uh, and such. And so I, I kind of look at it, uh, in this analogy, which is, um, you know, if you think about, if you think about a freeway, you know, if you impose a lot of restrictions, like let's say we only let cars go five miles an hour on the freeway, guess what? The number of deaths from automobile accidents is zero, <laughs> right? You're doing a great, but you can't get anything done. You have no commerce. You can't get your job done. You can't get where you want to go. Right. Uh, on the flip side, um, if we say, hey, do whatever you want on the freeways, there's no rules and drive as fast as you want, guess what? Yep. Um, there's going to be a lot of accidents. Those accidents are going to block the freeway. Um, you're going to actually have some decreased productivity in that and plus a lot of deaths. And right. so I think coronavirus is the same way. And I think we've seen this play out uh, over different states, which is if you, you know, if you completely lock down your economy, yes, you've got less deaths, but you uh, but you have a lot of other unintended consequences, financial and psychological. Um, but if, you know, but if you're reckless and you just don't pay attention to this and don't have any safeguards in place, you know, a lot of people die. And, um, uh, and the thing about COVID is, you know, it's not just, you know, obviously you're more at risk when you're, you know, when you're, uh, older, you know, when you're 75, there's a 21% chance of mortality potentially. Right. And so, um, but, you know, this is a disease that can do bad things to anybody. Um, and so, um, it's just kind of scary that way. And I, um, I've seen a number of, um, a number of kids in my practice that, uh, have really suffered with depression. Um, uh, you know, we've had some suicidal kids that have really been a big concern. Um, you know, we've seen a lot more domestic violence. Um, 
and then, you know, we've obviously seen the economic impacts of this. Yeah. And I think that's going to be probably the biggest thing to come out of this um, because economics really drives the whole world is, you know, when you're spending trillions of dollars um, to try to reinvigorate your economy, um, it's got to there's going to have to be a lot of thought about how do we avoid this in the future and yeah. what sort of either economic safeguards and public health safeguards do we really kind of put in, put in play. And so, um, uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this changes medicine. We've already seen it change in the fact that we have televisits now, right? Like virtual visits or telephone visits. Yeah. Um, you know, in food service, you guys have seen it as well with yeah. all this takeout stuff that we're doing now that, right. you know, you needed that sort of push. Um, <laughs> we're going to see this, I think, more in education. Yeah. You know, I honestly, I've had some kids learn a lot better through Zoom and I've had some kids just do terrible. And right. so um, I think we're learning to to leverage our technology. I, I kind of wonder, like, if this if this pandemic had happened 20 years ago, I think it would have been tremendously more devastating than it is right now because yeah. we just don't have the ability to to function as right. well then as we, as we do now. Um, so I, I think there's going to be a lot of silver linings that come out of this, uh, from a medical technology perspective, um, the amount of money that's been put into, you know, uh, uh, vaccine research is going to pay dividends, not only in vaccines in the future, but also for, um, other, other things. Um, you know, for example, uh, we now think that realistically soon we will see gene therapy be more of a, a thing where you can have, um, you know, have some DNA and, and in, infect someone with it and, and, you know, make a pancreas start making insulin for a, uh, for a kid who's type one diabetic, okay. you know, um, you know, and we'll be able to cure things like type one diabetes, um, which, wow. you know, that technology has really been kind of advanced. Yeah. Um, the vaccines, the way that they're done, the, especially the new mRNA vaccines, um, are probably the safest vaccines we've ever had, um, you know, and with from what we can see so far with kind of longer-term side effects. Um, there's a lot more short-term side effects because they work so well that they really invigorate your immune system. Um, but that'll be exciting as well. And, and hopefully, you know, the burden of disease around the nation, around the world will decrease. And, you know, for, for someone who's been abroad a lot doing medical work, um, you would not you would be amazed by, you know, how many kids and younger people, you know, die of preventable causes. It's millions, uh, yeah. you know, per year. So, yeah. Very cool. Well, it's, it's neat that you're, you've been able to see all of these different things, especially, um, it's, I'm sure it's not neat during the time period of it going through, but like being able to look back over your career and say like, you know, I was part of this when COVID struck and I was on the inside, like seeing the, the everyone work together in all these different levels. Um, it's yeah, it's you know it, it. You know, tragedies uh, and and adversity does that. You know, it can it can bring out some of the best in people. Um, and you know, um, that's always amazing to see. And you do you do feel like you're doing something historic. You know, I'm I'm the person giving vaccines tomorrow at the free clinic. You know, and you know it's like wow, it's like. I don't know. You know, it's like being back in World War II and being part of the the war effort, right? Yeah, it is. It really like is. you you you're excited to to play a part in history a bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really neat. Um, it's really cool too being able to see all the different aspects. I mean, being a doctor first of all is not an easy task to to become one, and then your work life is not necessarily easy once you are one. And, and on top of that, you you work with the Harbor Free Clinic and all these different things that you're involved in, and so it's really neat to be able to see 
all these different aspects. And, and yet you've raised, you know, at least I can attest to at least one of your children uh, <laughs> who worked for us for a short period of time. Yeah. Um, but she was excellent when she was working and, you know, always super great with communication and everything. And um, so you've, you've done a really good job. It seems on the home front and professional. Front. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. You know, again, Samuel Commando has been a great place to raise a family. Um, you know, we've, uh, you know, academically, you know, our kids have had some wonderful opportunities socially. It's been amazing. Um, uh, and, you know, again, I would just encourage everyone to, to find a way to give back, you know, find what your skill sets are and find a way to give back to your community. Um, you know, one of the things that Brandon was going to ask me was, um, was, you know, what, if I could have any message on a billboard on Camino Island, what would it say? And I thought a lot about this and there's a, there's a quote by, um, by Coretta Scott King that says, the greatness of a community is most accurately measured by the compassionate actions of its members. And in a world where I really feel like compassion is, is lacking in general, um, I think it's not lacking here in our community. Yeah. And, um, you know, I always like to say, and we say this for the free clinic, that if we can do this on Stanwood and Camano, people can do this anywhere in the world. And so, um, you know, it's all about, you know, how do you, how do you love your neighbor? Um, yeah. How do you work well within your community? And, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens to people, but how do you, how do you rise beyond that? And right. how do you rise beyond your differences? Right. Yeah. Um, and how do you kind of all come together? Um, and that's, that's important. Yeah. And I think that, that overall or overarching message of, of being able to be optimistic and have hope in all of that is, is very important. Cause I think that's a really difficult thing to do sometimes when you start getting into the weeds and you start seeing all the little cracks in the armor and, and stuff, you can really get discouraged and, and seeing the community step up and help out in the ways they have. Well, again, you know, everyone's core need is to be loved. And, um, you know, and so, you know, loving your neighbor is, is I think why this is the second commandment, right? It's the, or the greatest commandment. It's just, that's what, that's what people need to be able to, to thrive. Um, and I think that's what we'd want for everyone. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I like to end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. Uh, you've answered the last one, but we're going to start on the first one. Uh, what purchase of a hundred dollars or less have you enjoyed the most over the last three months? Uh, I took a couple of friends out for lunch um, that I hadn't seen in a long time, and uh, it was great. I I really appreciate that. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to be able to eat in a restaurant again. Absolutely, <laughs> it was fun. Very cool. Uh, pretend you have a friend coming from an, out of town. What would the first day look like here? Yeah, so uh, Camino is really cool, and I think the, one of the big things I like to do is kind of get out in nature. And so, um, you know, I would take them around to to all the different you know state parks we have, uh, Cama, Camino. Um, you know, take them down to English Boom, take them out mm -hmm. to the the Forest uh, Preserve, take them out to Barnum Point. Yeah. Um, you know, I. Uh, like Brandon, I think you know eating is great too, and so there's a lot of fun little spots to eat. Whether it's here at the Camino Commons down at down at Tapped or, you know, at uh, the Camden Beach uh, Lodge. Yeah. Um, and then you know, for people that are kind of interested in kind of those quirky things, there's a lot of cool quirky things on Camino, right? There's, you know, I mean, everyone's got to stop by Jack, see Jack Gunter's uh, <coughs> gallery, uh, Carla Matsky's gallery. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's an orchid farm on Camino. There. Um, uh, uh, there's a Camino Island fruit orchards, which is amazing. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of these little kind of quirky places that yeah. are, they're just kind of fun to visit. So yeah. there's more, more, more to do than just a day. Yeah, for yeah. sure. All right. And who is an interesting person in this community that I should interview next? You know, have you interviewed Jack Gunter yet? 
No, I haven't. You know, so there is no more interesting person on Commando than Jack Gunter. And uh, I hope he's listening to this because I think he would agree with that. So <laughs> I, um, you know, he's also a great community guy. I know he's been um, Sam with Commando uh, Person of the Year before. Um, you know, he's he's also given a lot to this community and he's got a lot of great perspectives. So that's your next challenge, Brandon. Brandon right. is, to, is to find him. Sounds good. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Brandon, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having Yeah. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Dr. Jimmy for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other Islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to commandocommons.com slash EP89. That's commandocommons.com slash EP89. Thanks for listening and see you next time.